Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Got into, into cannabis basically straight out of college. Um, but in, in my family and, and, and most of my, my uh, experience in, in business in general has been with my family. We've been working for, for four generations in specialty agriculture. Um, and, and specifically like livestock specialty agriculture for the past 30 years, we've been working with water buffalo and I've, I've just always been very involved there. And then I was getting training, um, let's say more formal training in, in college in the US studying uh, finance and business administration and, and some international business because we trade a lot of livestock. Um, and um, I, I, I had a passion for cannabis and, and, I, and I really was looking for anything to sort of make my own mark and differentiate um, in, in the agriculture space from what I, we had been working on for forever now. Um, and so we New York legalized um, um, CBD production, hemp production for cannabinoids. And, um, and, and I decided to get involved. So I would say really like the past five or six years uh, in, in the cannabis space and the cannabis industry has been um, the, the most formative part of my background, um, in, in addition to, to everything that I, that I worked on with, with family and, and, and specialty agriculture. And then Naturae itself as a company was, was born from, from myself and, and two uh, roommates of mine in college um, who we, we were looking to, to get into cannabis. And, and this was the, the fastest way that we could do it in New York and, and where we were. And we saw that it, it was a possibility to create a vertically integrated uh, a CBD producer. Of course, we learned a ton of lessons of, of how difficult it is and, and how hard it is to work in the cannabis space during those five years. Um, but, but we went ourselves and, and went fundraising um, and we raised $2 million in equity and, and a million in debt um, and, and built out our, our extraction facility and production facility, which then I guess like to, to what's most interesting in the conversation in the company now, going from five years of really struggling in the CBD industry of, of producing more, of adding more hours, of being more at the, uh, at the production plant, getting more output out and, and making less money. Um, and I would say it was, it was kind of like the best training ground that, that we could get making that attempt of, of a vertically integrated producer in CBD to, to enter THC now and to pivot into, into the adult use market in, in New York um, as that opened up. So I'm, I, I would say generally that's, that's, the most important background, but I think as we as we talk and 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 go through the the journey that the company has had, more more will come out for sure. Yeah. So, was the intention always kind of to go from CBD to THC, or that kind of happened with with some of the challenges of being a CBD and, and some of the challenges with the farm bill? Um, I it was like from the first year that that we got into it, it was always a conversation of oh, this will be a training ground, um, no matter what. If, if we're working in this space, we're going to be a lot closer to be able to enter adult use, uh, recreational. Um, but it was, it was so far away, right? Like it, we had no idea how New York was even going to legalize it. So it was always just, well, you know, we might be on a short list for that market if we're working in this market and, and, and working in this market. And, and, and I, I don't think we knew to what extent it was going to be an important training ground, but we always saw it as 
as, as a training ground to understand how to deal with cultivation, with extraction, um, with some manufacturing, um, but but not nearly as much as we deal with now. And, and then uh, from there, the way that things develop with the conditional adult use market in New York, of course, made that a lot more of a reality. But um, at the time, it was it was just I mean, the, the focus really was on on the non psychoactive cannabinoids let's say. Um, and then we knew that that maybe one day there, there was a chance that we'd be able to go into recreational through that. Um, at, at some points, that light was very, very dark, though, for sure. Yeah. And, and so as you mentioned, kind of the, the challenges the companies navigated over the past five or so years, um, you, you didn't mention being able to raise you know, a mix of equity and debt. So, so when did that happen? And, and sort of you know, what, what was the vision or the strategy that, that kind of sold investors on, on putting money into the company? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that, that, that's a good question because it was a very different time then than it is today. Um, we, we put together our, our business plan and, and project um, before we even had our CBD license, like in 2017. Um, and it, it was it was primarily built around uh, the visits that that we were lucky enough to have in Oregon and and, and California um, to CBD and THC farms that existed at that time there, um, and we were able to work there. And so we saw, okay, well, we 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 want to have a vertically integrated operation where ultimately we sell uh, a, a non psychoactive cannabinoid final product, but that's only going to be a small part of the revenue streams because it's it's a very competitive place in retail so our, our primary revenue stream is going to be wholesale kilograms of of uh, non-psychoactive cannabinoids so we're, we're essentially an ingredient provider and we're licensed to be an ingredient provider uh, a cultivator extractor and provider of of non-psychoactive cannabinoids and at the time when we built the business plan you could sell a kilo of cbd distillate for about like eight thousand dollars in 2017, primarily because of scarcity. Um, and a lot of investors, I think, were just, they, they wanted to put money into, into cannabis in some form or another. So we were, we were very lucky with the time. We were a very young management team when we raised the money. I would say I always kind of talk about this as a point of pride because everybody expects that we had like family help or, or that somebody very close to us put up the money. But really, we just we pitched dozens and dozens of investors and were able to put the money together um, at the time for, for CBD based on this $8,000 a kilo price point. And by the time we were in production, you know, much like a mining company or, or something like that, that might experience a shift in commodity pricing. By the time we were in production, CBD kilos were about four or $5,000 and we were producing them for about 1,500. And so it was it was still a great business, um, but that really lasted like six months. And, and there was a precipitous decline from there, like from when we started selling at five or six thousand dollars to when we we sort of we, we cut off production of CBD at the, at the, at the February of 2022 um, from six thousand dollars to about sixty dollars per kilo wholesale. Um, and so to this day, uh, unfortunately, we still haven't been able to pay out our, our original shareholders in our first raise. Um, and, and they're all still very much looking forward to that, that we're even still alive and exist today to, to take advantage of, potentially take advantage of, of this new market that's opening up. Yeah, and they, they must be excited, though, by sort of what you've been able to do the last six months being 
sort of first to market with your, your vape brand and then very recently launching your gummy brands. So I'll, I'll kind of let you get into that in terms of covering the product portfolio and when you launched it. But I imagine some of these investors are, are happy with sort of the transformation of the company now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and I have to say, like, in case in case uh, some others are, are listening, that the a huge uh, part of us being able to make it to this point was was additional investment investment of about three million dollars that that one of our investors, Brian Hinchcliffe, put in. Um, so to to for and 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 at the time that that investment happened, it was actually for CBD production expansion to lower our production costs to about eighty dollars per kilo, which which we achieved. But then the market went to sixty dollars per kilo. Um, but in in so transitioning into THC, um, all since since two thousand twenty two when this conditional program was announced, um, we've we've invested about like one point six to one point seven million or so in in product development and new equipment in uh, biomass and, and inputs and. Originally in, in, in 2022, since we had to add significant amount of manufacturing and we had to add distribution as a new business, our plan was actually to do quite a bit of brand licensing and we were going to bring on uh, out of state brands that already had all of the design work, all of the marketing, all of the branding established and, and, and we were just going to be paying a royalty and, and there's different structures of these deals that we could do. But as we continued that process, like we, we were never able to close a deal that really made sense to both sides, where, where it felt it felt fair on, on, on us putting in the license and, and capital for producing the product and then putting in the marketing. It just it was never able to work out. And, and through that journey, we were sort of forced in November of last year, December, because we didn't have a deal closed with that to to develop our own in-house brands and sort of put aside the fear of, OK, we have to operationally deal with manufacturing is a new business and we have to deal with distribution and we're also going to have to uh, manage in-house brands which is a whole other behemoth on, on its own um, and we just kind of put horse blinders on and said okay let's let's develop our brands as, as quickly as we can in November we got the license and then we had our our vape brand jaunty to market by by January and what made it super simple for us is because everything in CBD has been very extract focused and, and extraction based and technical things about extraction, whether it be distillate, live resin, live rosin. Um, we decided to just make our brands based on the outputs that we were putting out because as a consumer myself, I, I use distillate for different things. I use resin for different things. Um, so on the outputs and the form factors that, that we were putting out, we just decided to focus the brands there. So Jaunty is a distillate brand um, and it has distillate uh, 510 carts, it has distillate disposables, distillate gummies, and then Resonators um, is, our, is our live rosin solventless brand. Um, and, and that's got hash gummies, um, it's got cold cure rosin. So, so that's what kind of simplified it for us, just looking at it from an input perspective, because we I also feel that the, since the different inputs and form factors have different occasions and uses, you're just able to very easily sort of focus the marketing on that. And, and, um, and so we, we put, I would say these three brands together that we have, uh, John T, Jumbodos and Resonators, um, within like 90 to, to 120 days, they're, they're all to market. And John T was about 60 days to, to get to market. And then obviously with, with, with the intention and thought the, the whole time that, hey, this is a version one that we're putting out um, there's there's uh, fast 
uh, and 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 we we have to get out there as, as quickly as we can. But we're always going to have an opportunity to put a V two and V three out, and and that's what we've been doing. I mean, in, in July we'll have version two of Jaunty out with with quite a few improvements. Um, but yeah, uh, the, what what we've been able to do in the past six months, I would say, has has crystallized and come from from five or six years of of a lot of lessons, whether it be operationally, administration, the, the actual product development, and getting to see for years and be on the sidelines of the rec market and and watch everything, and then of course, like as a New York company, having the chance to look at what's worked in in a dozen other states. You know, I mean, we can. We can look at California, we can sign up for headset, which which we did, and we can look at the form factors and the brands that are that are leading in the market or that are breaking through in the market and uh, take inspiration, let's say, uh, from those markets to to take advantage of our position here, you know. Yeah, I want to go back to, to what you've kind of done the past six to nine months in terms of saying, okay, royalty agreements with established brands in California or other states aren't just going to work out based on economics. We're going to launch our own brands and launch three separate brands while managing a vertically integrated business. Um, so, so a lot of you know potentially complex, challenging things. So now with that, what's kind of the, the way to defend these brands as more brands will enter or MSOs, you know, you, you kind of have a, a couple of years, uh, call it maybe a year and a half or so, or depending where things go with the state and the ROs um, before the MSOs really enter. So, so what things are you doing to kind of build a moat or make sure your brands get the same kind of shelf space and, and success that you've seen to date? Yeah. So for the, the the number one thing that we're focused on in, in terms of that is, is service for sure. I mean, we we do same day delivery or next day delivery. Um, and and we're actually we're, we're putting up uh, about one hundred thousand dollars now into our distribution infrastructure to make sure we're going to be able to maintain that as more stores open with our with our self distribution plan. But essentially, we we think that if we have the best service, and of course, we we also have a quality product at at a, right now at least in the current market at at um kind of the the best prices in the market. It's it's going to help us build the relationships with with our dispensary partners, and very importantly, there we're insisting to our dispensary partners that they mark up our products further than Keystone. Um, so that because we know that they have they get crushed by by 280e consideration so we want them to make as much money as possible as they can from our products and and see that we deliver same day that we deliver next day that we're there to solve any of any of the issues concerns uh, uh, bad uh, replacement uh, carts replacement products that they need as quickly as possible and we think that that in New York is is going to be helpful so that's focus number one and then number two we did decide to to now recently to, to do a little bit of a hybrid with our model and bring in uh, uh, some some out of state brands so we're going to license critical concentrates um, who's going to put in a ton of effort toward toward their marketing um, and so we think with one or two solid out of state brands plus our efforts in in providing high quality service and making our, our dispensary partners the most money, um, we should be able to maintain the shelf space that we're looking for, for the volumes that we're looking for, right? Because we're also not looking to be a $150 million revenue company um, in the next couple of years. We, we just want to sell between two and $3 million a month. And, and I think there's going to be plenty of stores that appreciate 
um, all those things I just said to, to, to maintain our products in there. At least that's what I can say now in the short term and midterm. That's going to develop a lot more with with marketing initiatives as we have the capital to even do that in the first place, right? We're we're trying now once we reach break even to start setting aside three percent of of revenue um, for marketing, and I, and I think that that's going to go a long way, and it'll it'll develop itself quite a bit too, in in that defense and in that support for the stores. Yeah, so so let's get into some of the monthly revenue numbers. Um, where are you guys at now? Where do you expect to exit for December of this year? How many yeah. stores do you think that will be based on New York rolling out additional retailers? Yeah, so I, I think if we if we just stick to like May and June comparatively, and then go forward from there, it'll be easier. I mean, the, the previous months are are interesting as well, but but just to kind of uh, try to keep it. Try to keep it kind of brief. Um, so in in May we closed with three hundred thirty thousand in uh, retail sales, um, which in in April we 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 had three hundred fourteen thousand. So it was a small increase, and this goes to the strategy of adding the additional brands and products. Um, so that was three hundred thirty thousand in about uh, twelve stores, eight of those being storefronts. So the average sales per month, roughly, roughly speaking, were about thirty three thousand, thirty two thousand, something like that. Um, in June, we're going to close now with five hundred fifteen thousand, um, and we only had two new storefronts open in June. So we're finally starting to feel the effects of of increasing the SKU count from six to to twenty four, and and soon to thirty and products that address different occasions, different audiences, different uh, uh, different demographics. Um, so so they're they're all complementing each other on the sales. So from May average of about thirty thirty two thousand dollars in sales per store, we went in uh, in June now to an average of about $40,000 uh, per store. And, and we're expecting to be there in between like 40 and 45,000. Um, then for, for July, so we're in 15 out of 16 stores now, July and August, we should see about 15 more stores open, the majority of those being storefronts. So that's that's gonna take us here from, from 500,000 hopefully to about a million per month in, in August. We're, we're hoping August is going to be our first $1 million month. And then I don't have a ton of like hard, hard vision into what the last quarter, into what December will look like. But based on the OCM numbers, I think there could be another roughly 25 to 30 stores by December. So we'd be at 60 stores by December. And, and that would have us at a run rate of about two million dollars, uh, two to two point five million dollars by the end of the year. That's that that would be the goal. If if, if we can get to two million plus dollars run rate in December, I think we're we're in a great spot. We've maintained our current position in the market with another forty five stores opening. So that's that's what that's that that would be the goal there. Yeah, no, and, and, and you know, if, if you're doing a $24 million run rate uh, exiting the year, I, I imagine the, the business is, is potentially uh, definitely profitable. Um, but where, where do you think about like distributions to, to investors at that point? Or is it, hey, let's continue to invest and, and you know, keep our market share and, and grow this even more? 
Um, no, you know, we we're gonna we, our 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 view on it for sure is to be a dividend paying company after so many years of of investing and and believing and 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 continuing and trying. So I I, I hope that by by um, let's say March of two thousand twenty four, um, we could already start distributions. Um, if we're roughly speaking. If if we're at a at a two million dollar run rate um, in in a quarter, we should be able to distribute roughly about a million to a million and a half. So I, just just in rough numbers, we're going to say to the investors, we're going to keep twenty five percent of profits to reinvest, and we're going to distribute seventy five percent back. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you'd be uh, one of a handful of companies that I've heard that's able to actually do distributions while uh, well, I guess public or private, because even the, the public companies have negative EPS? Well, I mean, a, a big part of that is that so much investment has already been made in the past, right? Like like over $5 million has, has been invested. We own our property outright. Um, Brian Hinchcliffe, who I mentioned before, who's been mentoring me quite a bit, has has helped us a lot to stay super focused on, on very low overhead. So We've we've we haven't done any unnecessary expansions at our facility. Our if you saw our office lobby right now, there's about eight of us in the management team that are sitting in the same like 200 square foot room. Um, I I just think we because we've we've gone through so much spending. Um, we're we're lucky that our startup wasn't like, hey, we're gonna raise five million dollars to do this facility and this indoor grow and this. We have our relationships with our farms that provide the inputs at, at prices that work for our margin. And then we have a 9,000 square foot, very humble facility, let's say, that is able to output three to $4 million a month just in distillate products and another couple million in uh, in uh, live resin and, and live rosin products. So the, the facility itself at that 9,000 square feet with some warehousing addition, we're talking a very small warehousing addition and containers, is able to produce four or five million in revenue per month. And then what you do with your costs there in the middle to produce that four or five million, very, I mean, it's very simple what I'm saying. I, I get it, but it's like what's left of that, you know, you should be able to distribute some of it. Or then you've got a problem with your salaries, you've got a problem with your input costs, you've got a problem somewhere for sure. Um, and, and our biggest problem and our biggest hurdle right now, like I'm saying, we're at 500,000 in sales, but we're still just breaking even because the effective tax uh, on, on the excise right now for some of our products is 50%. You know, I mean, at our price point, like a lot of people in the New York market talk about the excise tax, meaning like 20%, 25% for them. For us and and, and most of our products, it's, it's at least 30%. And then in some of our products, it's as high as 50%. Um, and and that's just such a massive detriment. I mean, I know that's a whole other topic, but to to have the tax in the middle is inflating the price. In the end, the the government isn't seeing that inflated price. No, nobody's seeing it. So, I really hope that we're able to get to a to a tax after purchase as as soon as possible because it's going to help fundamentally with being able to compete with with the unlicensed market. It's it's not about shutting them down. It's not about fining them about it's just about being able to offer the same price points and quality and, and and but but with more convenience you know right then then becomes a no-brainer to purchase from the legal market and for operators should some of that the taxes actually you know be lowered you can actually make money and, and from there and the state will make the same amount of money that's the very frustrating part with this one like i i don't know which 
actuary or which mathematician was in charge of coming up with this excise tax, but they'll make the same amount of money. It's it just, they can make it at the end, not in the middle of the supply chain, but anyway. Um, that's, that's, I would say that's one of the biggest challenges in, in terms of cash flow, right? Like, uh, June 20th, we just made a payment of $227,000, um, in excise taxes, which would have, I mean, even, even half of that would have gone very well toward more product development or distribution. And that was for the month or that was what you owed them for like the first six yeah. months? No, that was for the second quarter. So the first okay. quarter we paid 70,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's uh, some really, really high figures, but at least you're you're doing well enough to to rack up a, a high excess ties bill. Yeah, that's always how you got to view it now, right? We don't have a choice until the next legislative session. We need to be like, well, at least that means that we're selling more, right? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I want to circle back to, to Brian, you know, so Brian seems to be a, a pretty important figure in the company in terms of, you know, investing several million dollars. Um, yeah. Help out kind of, you know, the, the audience, um, you know, how did you guys connect with Brian and, you know, what keeps uh, him interested in, in the company and the vision and the execution? Yeah, I mean, um, it was it was super serendipitous. You know, he was he was coming. He was working with one of the cultivators that that we work with um, and and they were coming to the facility to show around the, the, the facility, the processor that they worked with. Um, and and so she came by and she said, "Hey, I'm bringing an investor over. Um, just you know, I just want to make sure that everything's in good order and and it's going to be in, in, in impeccable because he's uh, he's 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 in he's from the mining world. He's been working mining for decades. Previous to that, he was in Wall Street, um, but he's very interested in agriculture now, and I want to show him the processing side of it, um, et cetera. So." They, they came by and I happened to that day, um, for whatever reason, I was wearing my button down, my blazer. I, I, it was just a coincidence. Um, and he came in and, and we started talking and there was just a connection right away because he, he asked me, hey, you're from Venezuela. You were originally born in Venezuela. I was like, yeah, I lived there until I was like 13. My family's from there. Um, and, and he told me, oh, I used to have one of the largest nickel mines in Venezuela. And we're laughing and this and that and talking. And he's telling me all about Chavez and, and, and the stuff that they dealt with politically there. And then, and then he, I mentioned that my wife is from Finland and he was like, you're kidding me. Your wife's from Finland. I have a, la a massive gold mine in Finland. And so I'm immediately like, okay, this guy's got gold mines and nickel mines, like all over the globe. Um, let's, let's talk to him about this in the way that he's going to want to hear about it. And, and Vitalis, our extraction equipment company had just came out with this co-solvent system where we'd be able to increase our extraction times. So we were we were talking about how rough CBD was at, at that time. We owed this cultivator some money and and just going over you know how how how, how tough everything had been and and I explained that with a three hundred thousand dollar investment we could double our throughput through the machine um, and we'd be able to decrease costs from about like three hundred dollars to about one hundred twenty dollars per kilo because we could do it with less people, blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he was like, okay, well let's sit down and talk to you about how we get that three hundred thousand dollars. I mean. Listen, I, I've worked in processing my whole life. I'm very interested in processing and I'm, I'm looking to get into something new. Um, so I, honestly, we got very, very lucky and him and I just get along super well. Um, and and then in terms of maintaining the relationship, I, I, I would say, I mean, he's an incredibly tough guy. He was in Goldman Sachs when it was private uh, for, for years before he went into the mining world. Um, but but it's all just 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 really been about communication and about not being afraid to talk about when things are going badly and about what solutions you think you have, if any, and if there are none, hey, what do you think we can do? 
So he's super hands-on, super involved. I, I must talk to him two or three times a day. And uh, and just 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 generally interested in, in the fundamentals of business and how they intersect from one industry to another. So so the, the way to keep him involved and interested had just been to to feed him information about all the problems that we have all day, you know, and just just tell him, hey, this went wrong and this went wrong. He he, he sort of hates hearing about when things go right. Uh, when it, when things go right, he's like, okay, all right, well, I'll talk to you later, you know. <laughs> um, so so keeping him informed about the things that are going wrong and and to be honest that was something that we weren't very good at doing with our with our previous set of investors which now we are and and now everybody's in a, in a much better place but it's been it's been this learning that communication good or bad is is absolutely critical and maybe that's a very basic thing but it seems like a lot of people like to make relationships with investors like very formal and I'm going to schedule it with you and oh we need to have a call can we do it next Tuesday that's when I have some time just take all the calls right away face it right away and you just have at least a chance at having somebody continuing to believe in the thing you know yeah so it sounds like you now probably have more of a, a regular quarterly or, or monthly investor updates kind of keeping uh you know people on, on top of how the business is doing yeah, we'll do quarterly and then I'll just occasionally, if I have an update that that itches me enough, I'll just send it out to everybody, you know. Got it. You yeah, know, I mean, that's that's important, right? If people put money into the company, they want to know how that money's doing. Um, it, it sounds like Brian also kind of, you know, is, is one of the more active investors that want to actually help out and not just passively in, invest. These um like Canadian mining guys uh, have, have come into cannabis, right? Whether it's like, hey, this like shell company is a mining company and, and now I'm going to reverse yeah. the public with it. Like I kind of assumed before you told me how you, you met Brian, that that was kind of his background. But uh, no, this is. Uh, yeah, no. And, and it is like his main his main claim to fame, let's say, is Kirkland Lake Gold that he founded in, in Canada. Um, and that's a big gold mine in Canada. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely the background. Yeah. And then, you know, look, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier as well, from a co-manufacturing uh, perspective, like I, I thought your perspective on it was to to kind of not do that anytime soon. Uh, but it sounds like that mindset has kind of changed recently, right? Because uh, you mentioned earlier, you're, you're taking on a few brands to, to do co-manufacturing. Just one right now. Yeah. When, when, and and it's, I, I wouldn't say it's co manufacturing I mean, it's, it's a it's a licensing deal for sure. We're we're paying like a five percent royalty on it, but it's a little bit more involved than that. So critical concentrates. It's a it's a concentrate brand, obviously a dabble concentrate brand from California, um, and uh, it was founded by Alex Cupamil, and Alex has been working with us on our live rosin extraction, on our fresh frozen cultivation, now uh, since since January. Um, and it's been this conversation back and forth, like, hey, should we, would you guys consider bringing this in? Well, let's think about it. And and finally, we realized like, hey, we can't, we, we just don't have the bandwidth to continue expanding brands, but a concentrate brand, especially, is something that needs focus from, from a founder, you know, it needs, it needs, it needs dedication from, from a founder that's thinking about every single strain, that's thinking about the, the, the trimming of that strain, the extracting. So, with critical concentrates, it just made sense to bring them in. And then when we brought, we, we actually just signed the deal last week. Um, and I, I'm not sure I thought I had mentioned them to you, but um, we uh, realized like, hey, they're going to bring in quite a bit of marketing assets. If there's one brand that we could bring on that covers a few categories that even covers some of our categories, 
that would elevate our portfolio significantly and that it would be a strategic thing. Let's bring on maybe one more brand outside of Dabbables, but it's like, it has to be the right thing. And that would sort of at least close out this pilot portfolio, this, this self-distribution pilot portfolio for now. Um, but when I hear co-manufacturing, when I hear like white label, I'm imagining like Natura in California, like where that's the main business and it's like massive at scale. Here, it's more like a compliment to the portfolio and to the marketing effort, more so than trying to make money off of the co-man as a business model, you know? Yeah, no, no, totally. And I think, you know, I think of any cannabis a little differently. It, it's more of a uh, horse trading. So, you know, you can benefit from it in one way and they benefit in another, right? So yeah. uh, we, we've seen deals like Garden Society where they may manufacture for a competitor in New Jersey like they are going to do for Kiva, but then that means in California, they get distribution through Kiva Sales and Services. So uh, I definitely don't think it's it's more of a, a straight co-man uh, like in more traditional CPG industries. It, it's more like you use it to yeah. augment your, your core business. And it sounds like in, in your case, uh, some, some SOPs and, and kind of, you know, knowing that, hey, we're doing a lot. Uh, this is a lane that maybe it's best fit for someone else to kind of own. Uh, and then going back to what you said about the realty structure, uh, th this one seems very favorable for your company. Um, so it makes sense to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then Alex is working with us like every day, you know, so on, on a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, on that, so it, it sounds like, you know, you wrapped up that last answer saying, look, you, you've kind of gotten the portfolio in, in nice shape. Um, you know, tell us how many SKUs today and sort of how many SKUs do you envision, you know, exit the year with and, and how many SKUs do you ever want to have? That last one is a great question. <laughs> We should, we should add our operations manager to that question, see what he thinks. Um, so well, we started with six SKUs, which was just Jaunty Vapes. And then we added Jaunty Gummies, um, which have six SKUs because they come in 10 counts. And then we also have like a sampler pack that we sell that's a two count gummies. Um, and, and that took us to uh, roughly 12 SKUs. Then we brought back Jumbo Dose, our tincture brand from the CBD days and, and, and pivoted into, into a rec brand. Um, and that brought us to 16 SKUs. Um, so by July, we're going to be adding new flavors to Jaunty. We're going to be adding disposable vapes. We're going to be at around 24 SKUs, if I'm not wrong. And by August, we'll be at 32 SKUs, which will include disposable live rosin vapes for resonators. It'll include four SKUs of, of cold cure live rosin. So we'll be um, we'll be at that roughly 34. And, and we still want to add flavors to like our hash gummies and et cetera, but we're going to stop there, I think, for the year. Um, so far as is, is what has been the, the consensus internally, we're going to stop at least until December um, because there's just so many challenges that are going to come up with that expansion from six SKUs to, to 30 something SKUs. And I, we, we, the, the last thing that we can accept or, or that, that we have to avoid is stockouts on, on any of our SKUs. So I, I want to say that most likely the sweet spot is going to end up being still like maximum 40 SKUs, like 35 to 40 SKUs. And then we'll just start rotating. We'll, we'll start rotating flavors on, on quite a few things in there. Um, because I, I, I just watching from afar, like what Jeter has done, what, 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 um, raw garden has done, what's a bunch of these companies have done in California to, to be able to succeed. There has been maintaining new flavors and, and maintaining the portfolio super fresh. And so 
it'll transition from like adding new SKUs and product of, uh, from just adding new products and processes to just product development, improving the current SKUs and, um, and switching in and out uh, flavors that perform or don't perform or, or simply switching them out because, because they both perform and we want to, we want to update the portfolio a bit. Uh, so yeah, 35 to 40, sorry. No, that, that, that makes sense across three brands. Um, totally makes sense from what I've kind of seen before. And, and look, it seems like you look to California for uh, inspiration, which makes sense, you know, very mature, don't use market. So with that, I kind of want to ask you about the distribution component. Um, we certainly, you know, saw a lot of headlines around herbal and, and kind of that not working out from a you know, third-party distribution standpoint. Uh, there's a few companies that self-distribute to, you know, 600, 800 dispensaries in, in California. Seems like in New York, you're, you're following that model. Um, is that out of necessity? Would you, you know, I, I don't even know if there are third-party distributors today or there will be, um, but would you hand off that distribution component or do you want to keep that in-house? So um, the, it's definitely out of necessity right now. And because it's been born out of necessity, we want to learn a lot more in distribution. We're, we're starting to get comfortable with self-distribution at a very small scale, and, and, and we want to learn more about it. And, and so we actually have a meeting with, with Navis on, on July 12th or, or 13th, I think, something like that, with, with Vince Ning, who's supposedly a co-CEO and like a, a, a founder there, and some of the Navis team, so we can really understand what their model is. Our, our the most important thing to us is the relationships that we have with the stores. So any kind of third party distribution that we'd be able to cede control to in, in our in our company would have to be like a very logistics focused distribution where where they're just saying, hey, we're just going to take care of uh, uh, delivering this as as you guys see fit. And there's a, there's a very good system that we have here whereby when orders come in, we can meet your delivery requirements. Because we want to be very small, fast, nimble. We want to be able to solve problems for our dispensaries at 9 p.m. if required. Last Friday, I was making a delivery at like 10.30 p.m. to a delivery-only store because they needed to drive to Long Island for a delivery on Saturday. So losing control of being able to do those kinds of things is very scary for us because it means we lose control of the moat that, that I'm saying that we need to build around us to, to, to defend against the, the larger companies that will be coming in. Um, so I, I would say right now we 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 think that we're going to continue on the self distribution route. If in this meeting with Nabis, that I, I think they'll be coming into the market soon through one of the licensed processors here, um, they can prove to us that that can be maintained. Then we would consider it for sure because it's it, it's a headache. Uh, it's I mean, and and we want to get into, for example, beverages through a joint venture that we're exploring with a with a big New York cider company, and that's going to be. Uh, it, honestly, right now, impossible. The reason we're not doing the JV is because we we don't feel that we're going to be able to to meet the distribution demands of beverages. So, so there, I, I just I don't I don't know enough about the the distribution companies that are going to come in here and 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 offer their services. But I hope that there's one that's that's very logistics focused and that and that lets us um, maintain the the relationships of suppliers with the stores at the level that we want to maintain them. Yeah, and I think that's more Navis's model in California, where they kind of do the, the last mile logistics. Um, they don't get involved in sales like Herbal did. Um, you know, they'll, they'll partner with someone like if you've heard of Pedal Fast, um, they'll, they'll kind of let someone like that do the sales if the, the brand themselves don't want to do it. And, and I think that's usually more 
in non-core markets. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, Vince has probably been there six, if not like 12 months now, and you are kind of figuring out how they enter. So you're, you're definitely oh, okay. folks for that. I didn't know that. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's helpful background to go into that meeting um, because we're, I mean, you could imagine why, why you would be very defensive about that, that position. Um, Cause you're kind of handing over your baby to somebody else. If that, if that was the case, if Navis is doing logistics and, and they, they, I mean, I, they seem very confident, like, hey, Nick, we're going to show you the portal and you're going to see that, that this is just going to work to make things easier. I'm like, all right, let's see. Yeah, no, uh, I totally get that because that, that's kind of part of, I would imagine, the 15 dispensaries you work with and, you know, up to the 40 you'll work with uh, to end the year where you guys are going to be different, right? As, as one of the brands in the New York market before it gets flooded, you are able to provide great customer service, on-time delivery, like you mentioned, within a day. Uh, throughout the state, like that is what matters to a lot of retailers. And especially over time, that's what's going to keep you on shelves. Yeah, yeah. And and that just reminded me, we also kind of a lot of states don't have this, I guess, you know, I, I, I haven't been able to operate in a lot of states, but New York regulators have made it very simple for us, you know, like there's a there's a form that we just fill out, if we want to add a distribution facility. So like our biggest challenge is going to be New York City and Buffalo. Um, and as I understand a lot of other states, you can only distribute out of the licensed premises that you have. Well, New York was like, here, just fill out this form and make sure that you meet the security requirements. And for very low CapEx and, 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 and very low recurring costs, you can set up a small warehouse in Syracuse and a small warehouse, let's say in like Mamaroneck close to New York. And, and you have a, a team of two in each one of those. And I mean, at least for the next 18 months or so, I, I don't think that it's going to be overwhelming to try to maintain that that same day next day i mean if even if it's two day you know by the time we have 100 stores it's not it should be manageable i mean let's see yeah and, and that is different from other states where you usually need to invest in larger warehouse and, and kind of pick you know where your hub and, and spokes are um so that makes it favorable but as you're telling me that, what what I see, if, if you're not a distribution company and don't come from that background, that could be challenging is, you know, if there's a hundred stores in New York City and you need to do routes and figure out delivery schedules, that that seems like that's going to be pretty overwhelming when we get to that point. Yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be. We have someone on the team that's 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 got a lot of distribution experience. So like we're already looking at at zones in New York City, like for example, near Union Square, where we've got like uh, um, dazed Union Square Travel Agency, Housing Works, and Smacked. Um, that in that zone, for example, if we have three drivers or, or three people in the car, we can actually do a delivery with one driver, go to the next store, a delivery. So there's like, if you zone it out and you and you really plan out your your staffing around it. It, I mean, it's it's tough. I'm not saying it's not tough, but I, I I think that we we could meet the challenge for the next 12 to 18 months. I mean, let's see, let's see for sure. And if we can, we might have to go to two day delivery. And and I don't think that'll be the end of the world for most of these stores, because from what I'm hearing is that their average times to get deliveries is about you know four to seven days. Um, so. Yeah. And, and again, I think in, in California, that's anywhere from two to probably five days and some even stretch longer. Um, you know, obviously NorCal, SoCal, you know, driving between one end to the other is anywhere from six to eight hours. So uh, yeah, uh, you, yeah. you certainly would not annoy customers if it took two days instead of one day. 
can you can you add like simple distribution facilities warehouse closet whatever you want to call it can you add simple stuff like that over there or is it more complex re regulatory it's more uh, complex than that so it's gonna be harder to set up like a. Uh, it sounds like you're doing some smaller you know thousand two thousand three thousand yeah no th those are more massive facilities that you'll need to invest in Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes it a, a little bit easier. Cause I was going to say like Buffalo is a six hour, a six, six and a half hour drive. Cause we're right on the border with Vermont all the way on the other side. So the Syracuse uh, facility will help, will help a bunch. Um, and, and Syracuse will be important for us as well because Flintstone, I don't, I don't know if you've read about yeah, them. I've read that store. Yeah. Yeah. They, they open there and they're just like absolutely crushing it. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, um, the, the, the sales that they're doing there, I think they, they've already passed a million dollars and they've been open for like 12 days. Um, yeah. And that, and that's like without school being in session, right? Cause like, I imagine when Syracuse is back in session, uh, it's probably going to, yeah, that's just the locals. Yeah. 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 Local. And then probably people within, you know, a, a hour or two hour drive, because right now there's not that many stores throughout the state. So you still get kind yeah. of that, demand from you know folks that are, are a little bit further away willing to make that drive and stock up for a week or a month yeah yeah for sure for sure and yeah and, and I just think Syracuse is like a it's such a central point for for so many different areas it's going to be like Buffalo Syracuse upstate capital region and the New York City are kind of going to be the regions a ton of Canadians go to go to Syracuse they have the, the Syracuse fair over there and actually Flintstones is, uh, is, is going to be opening a store like right next to the fair. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be an important spot for, for New York, for sure, for distribution. I mean, I imagine Nabis is looking at Syracuse for sure. Yeah. I think usually these guys, you know, they'll, they'll want to do, if they do one somewhere very central to the state that, you know, it's like roughly in the central and they can be three hours to any direction. Uh, if not, they kind of have, two locations that that sort of offer something similar. Yeah. Yeah. So so last question for you, Nick, what's sort of your near term and let's call near term, you know, two to three years from now and then longer term goals, which are five plus years. What, what's your goals for the, the company as it relates to near term and, and longer term? In, in the near term, it would be to 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 establish and maintain 5% plus market share with with uh, with our portfolio of brands. Um, and and that's that involves all all of the stuff that we've been talking about, right? Um, and then in in the longer term, as as we learn more about distribution and logistics, um, if we're able to pull off what we want to pull off here and establish that market share, it'll mean that that we're very successful with our self distribution model, and um, and we we're very tentatively looking at in the long term, um, hopefully having less. Um, production and manufacturing and 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 more distribution and logistics for for other New York brands but that's very far away so I, I would say like <laughs> five years in cannabis is, is as you know a, a super super long time so I, we just we really need to focus on trying to keep uh, establish and 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 keep five percent market share in, in New York which is going to be hopefully a four or five billion dollar market in the next three years or so three to four years so so that that's that's what we're looking at yeah, and then five years is very hard to predict. So I apologize for even trying. No, to no, it's just that like <laughs> I, I even feel a little foolish whenever I talk about a distribution play in the longer term because I'm like I, I just have no idea. I hope that we can kind of pivot into that, but but I have no idea. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, so so let, let's do rough numbers here to you know your your other answer on sort of five percent market share. So I assume that's five percent at wholesale. So let's say if the market's four billion at retail, let's say Keystone for simple assumptions, you're talking about two billion of wholesale, meaning a hundred million of revenue. You guys are going to keep five percent market share. Is that correct? Yeah, in three to four years. Yeah, like so right now as it stands with the number that the OCM released, we have about ten point six percent market share uh, within all categories. And then if, if you take away flower, which we don't participate in, we're, we're at about 20% market share. So as the market grows, as each new store opens, again, with, with kind of horse blinders on, it's trying to stay above 5%. Um, and that's going to for sure involve a ton of operational uh, and production challenges when we're talking about a $4 billion market. But I, I think we'll meet them whenever they come. Would that mean you would consider at some point getting into flower, just given the market share that flower typically sees in, in every market? And, you know, it's typically the, the number one, if not number two category? Uh, no, probably not. No, I mean, we would. So right now, the share that the OCM releases flower has 36% and pre-rolls have 15%. So we are going to go into infuse pre-rolls. That's, that's the last brand that we have in-house already trademarked and ready to go. We just don't have the input for it. It's Jaywalkers. Um, and jaywalkers will be infused pre-rolls. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to participate in that that 15 to, to eventually probably 20% that the pre-rolls will be. But that 30 to 40% that flower will hold in New York is going to stay in, in other people's hands. It's just too much investment, too much. It's a it's to, to try to produce high quality smokable flowers is, is a whole other world, in my opinion, that's that's too far from any of our management teams like expertise. 